This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of John, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Canaan and Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to have to comment on one thing that uh, Keith said earlier and that uh, Caleb was backing up. I think that's so important to realize that worship is not revelation, it's response. We shouldn't come here waiting for God to reveal something to us. We're responding to all that he has revealed to us in our lives and the wonderful miracles throughout the week. And so I so appreciate uh, what they said about that. The reason I bring that up is I have a confession to make. I spied on you all while Ethan was singing. And it was so cool. No, Vicki, you did. It was great. You had this real guilty. You have a real guilty look now. No, but I was so blessed by your engagement with what he was saying, the singing and the words. I was just amazingly blessed. You all exhibited what Keith was talking about. Maybe he's just got you brainwashed. I don't know. But no. In all seriousness, thank you for blessing me by your engagement. It was telling me you were bringing something to worship. So I thank the choir. What great folks. A few years ago, uh, my daughter Hannah was invited to travel to Indonesia with uh, President Westmoreland, president of Sanford University, and, and his wife Gina, along with some other education students. And they went over there and were having a, a wonderful time. We're learning a whole lot. This was during a January term. And there is a wealthy Indonesian Christian who's been very, very kind to Sanford. And he's a wonderful man. I can't recall his name, but uh, he loves to have Sanford people over to uh, Jakarta where he lives. And he takes them all around and, and really shows them some amazing things. And he thought, these education students have been so great. I want to take them to something special. So he invited them to a wedding reception. And none of them really had clothes for, you know, these are school teachers. They had teacher clothes, you know. And this was a wedding reception, but they, they dolled themselves up as best they could and went to this reception. And we were kind of getting a play-by-play from Hannah on our, on our iPhones. She was texting us. And even with the time difference, we were just really intrigued about this reception. Well, she goes in there, and basically there's about 5,000 people in this huge banquet hall. And, uh, uh, you know, they were like, well, we don't really know anybody, but we'll just go right in. And, and it was this incredible, elaborate, opulent setting, and the food was just incredible. 
And we kept getting texts, and then there was a long pause. And there was, you know, we didn't get a lot of texts for a while. And then finally we got one. And I don't, do you all know how sometimes people will text or Facebook or something, and they put a period after every word to make a certain point? You know what I mean? I love this church. You know what I'm saying? People do that. Well, we're, we, we hear the little beep. We look up. <laughs> I promise. It says, Jackie Chan just sang. <laughs> you know, we rubbed our eyes. Jackie Chan just sang. The Kung Fu guy, famous for these Kung Fu-ish kind of movies, uh, classics like Rumble in the Bronx and Rush Hour 1 through 13. And, uh, but apparently Jackie Chan also sings, and he wrote a song for this couple. And, and he sang at the reception. In fact, I have a picture. This is the actual uh, 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 program of the uh, special performance. And I think that there's a group called El Devo. Any of you young people heard of El Devo? They sang there too. But then it was Jackie Chan. And I think that's supposed to say and El Devo. They misspelled it. Even the most opulent of things can get it wrong. But there's Jackie Chan singing a song at this wedding reception. Now, uh, a lot of pomp and circumstance at a place like that. We think of pomp and circumstance when it comes to weddings with uh, the wedding uh, years ago of Prince Charles and, and Princess Diane. We think more recently about Prince William and Duchess Kate. Millions of people watching this, and you talk about pomp and circumstance. But it's not nearly the pomp and circumstance that you had in this rural town, kind of podunk town back in A.D. 27 called Cana. And you didn't have this real uh, grandiose kind of wedding or wedding reception there, though it was longer than most of ours, as we'll see. But it was really the wedding of two common people. We might say two peasants. But there was one thing that was rather grandiose about it, though some people didn't realize it, and that's that Jesus of Nazareth was there. And it's amazing. This is the first sign that Jesus performed when he turns the water into wine at Cana. We all know that story. But what's interesting about this is is John calls them signs. Do you know about this? Matthew, Mark, and Luke call them miracles. John always, he records seven miracles in his gospel, but he calls them signs. And he does that on purpose. What does a sign do? It points to something. It gives you a message. And I've talked many times here about how Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, did everything that was calculated for a teaching effect. Even with his miracles, he was trying to make a point. John was locked into that, and so he called these miracles signs because they pointed to something else, something deeper, something more meaningful. Now, this was an unlikely place for the Son of God to begin with his first sign. I mean, let's think about it. If Jesus was going to, you would think Jesus would come out, you know, great guns blazing, you know. Let's have an earthquake. Let's have him walk on water. Let's have him uh, uh, have lightning and fireworks and all this stuff. You know, I am the great Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. But he doesn't do that. He starts out small. Uh, One scholar has said this is a sign of the gospel writ small. And as we'll see, Jesus thinks, you know, I'm going to start small because, again, it's not yet my time to do something grander. But, you know, when we think about starting small, let's say with a relationship, let's say with a business relationship, what usually happens? You go to a business meeting, you go to a conference, you meet somebody and you have a common interest and, and Ultimately, what are you going to do? You're going to give that person a business card, right? And, and, and again, it, it's not the full picture of who you are, but it's a good representation of who you are and what you do, what your purpose is. It really speaks to your vocation. 
It represents who you are anyway. And that's what Cana is all about, this feast at Cana, this miracle sign at Cana. Jesus is declaring his business. Well, what is his business about? Let's see what this sign tells us about what Jesus' business is about. Because if you and I want to lock in to this new wine that he offers to us, we need to understand with this first sign what Jesus is trying to convey, saying, I am in this business. Well, first of all, Jesus is in the grace business. I think that would be the first thing on his card. Now, what's the situation here in the passage? It's basically a big, fat Jewish wedding, okay? And, and unlike our weddings over here where you might have a ceremony that takes an hour, possibly two, I've been to those, uh, and you might have a reception that goes, let's say, uh, four, maybe six hours, okay? A big, fat Jewish wedding of the first century went four to six, not hours, but what? Anybody know? Days. It went on and on. So let's think about this. They run out of wine early. To do that in what was known as a culture of hospitality was just scandalous. It was embarrassing. It puts a slur on the wedding and on the couple. It's a lifetime memory of a big fail. Even the rabbis back then spoke of possible legal action that families took against each other when one of them ran out of the wine and they blamed the other. So it was a big deal. It was no small event. Well, Jesus... Though he has a lot of other things to be concerned about, he enters into their distress. He comes through for them. He rescues them from this embarrassing situation. Really rescues them from guilt and shame. And Jesus helps us often, doesn't he, when we can't help ourselves, even when it's a lighter form of need, a lighter level of need. He does that, and we can do that for each other sometimes, even with less serious, less dire matters. And it's great when we can help each other out in that way, I love the story that Harold Warlick uh, told. Harold was a divinity professor up at Harvard Divinity School, and he had a professor friend who would always go to Europe every year and collect these. Does anybody know what a Demitasse cup is? It's these beautiful cups, a kind of delicate cup, sometimes painted beautifully. And he loved to collect those and come back. And he, he would always serve those at the end of the school year with his PhD students who had been with him in seminars and that kind of thing. So he brought these cups back just for that time when he would meet and have a nice uh, informal dinner with his uh, doctoral students. And so he brought those back, and he served them uh, on uh, the plate in, or on the table. It was after they had a meal. He had this wonderful tea to serve them, and they're all you know, enjoying these Demitas cups. And then one female student mishandled the cup, and it fell on the floor and shattered. And it was one of those terribly awkward <laughs> moments, and they said that she turned red almost immediately and just started shaking. And people were wondering, well, what do we do? Well, at that point, this professor who was hosting them stood up, turned toward the fireplace, and slung his cup into the fireplace, and it shattered. And he sat back down, and everybody just kind of sat there like, what? And then Harold Warlick says that he was kicked under the table. He sat across from the professor, and he got a big kick in his shin so bad that he, he said, ouch, out loud. But then he caught the eye of the professor and he realized what was going on. And he stood up and ceremonially went over to the fireplace, slung his in there. Well, these students, these are our mentors, our heroes, our professors. They did it. And one by one, they got up and threw their cups into the fireplace. Finally, after the last student had sat down, there was again an awkward silence like, what is all this? At which point the professor looked across at Harold Warlick and said, isn't it wonderful that she anticipated our end-of-the-year 
tradition of crashing our cups into the fireplace. That's amazing. How did you know that? Isn't that wonderful? That's charming. That's a wonderful creative way that he rescued her from a lighter level of, of need and dire straits. But again, all the more how miraculous it is that Jesus shows us how he can rescue us from something a lot more dire, which is our broken relationship with God, and that's exactly what he does. How seriously do we take that? <clears throat> and how seriously do we see the symbolism, even of this? He, what does he do? He takes uh, uh, six stone pots, each about 20, 30 gallons each. It's interesting that it's the number six, by the way, in Hebrew numerology, as we've talked about, the number six is the sign for what? Incompleteness. It represents incompleteness. Seven is the complete number. Six is incompleteness. But they have six stone pots filled with water. What was the water used for? Well, it was for purification. It was a ritual that you did when you entered a Hebrew home for a dinner. You would wash before the meal and wash after the meal. And it was a ritualized symbol of purification. The thing was, after centuries of that, it had come to not mean much. It was just habit. It was ritual. It was routine. It had become really dry and empty. And that's Jesus' point. It's a symbol of the emptiness that you and I can even fall into when we do cultural Christianity. When it's just the thing to do. We're in the deep south. We're supposed to come to church and be nice to each other, put a little money in the plate. But it becomes ritualized and empty. And yet Jesus on his business card is saying what? You've used water for external cleansing, but I can bring internal cleansing that lasts even beyond this life. Later on, one night, what did Jesus say? He took up a cup and he said, what? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink in remembrance of me. What is Jesus saying? That's internal cleansing. You know, this is the purification that I can provide. My blood for your soul. Take and drink and remember me. And in just a few minutes, we will be remembering. So Jesus is in the grace business. That would be on his card as he performed this sign in Cana. But he's also in the sovereignty business. Okay, what's our theme for this year? It's all his. It's all his. And with that, I want to focus on verses 3 and 4 here. Some are bothered by Jesus' response to his mother Mary. It says, what, the wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. <clears throat> and she doesn't tell him what to do. I just love, I just think she's giving him that look, you know. They have no more wine. And what does Jesus say? Now, this is the New Living Translation. It says, dear woman. Most translations just say woman. You know, that's not our problem. Or what have we to do with this? Now, again, let's talk about that because it bothers some people. They think that Jesus is being kind of rude to his mom. Not at all. It's a formal word, but not one of disrespect. I think New Living Translation captures it well with dear woman. Uh, it's not disrespectful at all. Jesus uses it only one more time in recorded scripture. Later on in John, when he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at his mother Mary and says, Woman, behold your son. In a very formal fashion, he's telling her, John is now your son. He's going to take care of you. It's a formal word, but not one that's disrespectful. But to be fair, it, it was kind of a semi-rebuke, because what is Mary doing? She's wanting Jesus to operate on her timetable and not his. You with me? Gosh, do we ever do that? <laughs> like a lot of the time. So his word has what I would call a distancing effect. How so? And I think this is important. It signified a change in relationship between Jesus and Mary, between the son and the mother. 
It was a change in relationship between a mother and a son to a sinner and a savior. Think about that. Ultimately, even Mary had to be distanced to the point of her realizing what Jesus was about. Think about that. Just amazing. You remember later on in in Matthew 12? Somebody comes to Jesus and says, hey, your mother and your brothers are out here. They want to see you. And what does Jesus say? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? My mother and my brothers are here. They're the people who do my father's will. That's my mother and brothers. And even Mary had to comprehend that. Even when he's dying on the cross saying, woman, behold your son, there's a distancing effect there saying, look at who I am now. Look at what I'm doing on the cross. I am the savior of the world shedding my blood and even you need to know about that. And I want you to think about that. Just like everyone else, Mary needed a savior. And if Mary had to take a position in relation to her own son, to where her son becomes her savior and her Lord, think about how much more you and I need to comprehend that in our own lives. All the more we need to see him as a savior. And by his sovereign will, he can rescue you and me. And that's what he's saying, by the way. He says, dear woman, that's not our problem. That's from a Hebrew idiom that literally means what to you and to me. He's saying there are things that you and I and all the people in the rest of the world need to be concerned about more so than running out of wine. And it's this problem called sin. It's this problem of being in a broken, dishonorable relationship with God. And we need to do something about that. That's what I was sent for. That's part of what's on my business card. And he kept talking about it with the time to come. He says, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. That phrase shows up six times in the Gospel of John. Jesus either says, my time has not yet come, or it says Jesus' time had not yet come. What is the time that it's talking about? It's talking about his crucifixion. It wasn't time yet, but later on it becomes his time. And what he's telling his wonderful mother is, you know, it's on God's sovereign timetable, not yours. I don't need to come out with guns blazing and do some big miracle now or reveal who I am yet because people won't understand it and they won't really allow my message to come across to them. I need to do this in my Father's sovereign timing. So Jesus knew his mission. He knew he needed to be through the mission of the Heavenly Father and his sovereignty business. And what I love is if you go to the next verse, Mary gets it immediately. She submits to his sovereignty. She yields. His mother said... To the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's not urgent. She's saying, you know what? He's right. Whatever he says, I yield, I surrender to him. So that's beautiful. That's what you and I need to do. Give up our own urgent timetable and rely on God's. So this first sign that Jesus performs, it shows us that he's in the grace business and the sovereignty business. And finally, he's in the joy business. Where does all of this happen? Where does this first sign occur? He did this sign on a festive occasion, a wedding. And Jesus loved to go to parties. He loved to be at parties with people whom his enemies would call what? Wine bibbers and gluttons. I love it when the Pharisees and John the Baptist's uh, disciples kind of join together, which is a weird pair. But let's show that verse up there. It's John, what is it? Oh, excuse me, Mark 2.18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. What they're saying is, how come you get to have fun and we don't? And Jesus uses a wedding image. Go to the next verse, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, while I'm here, we're going to party. This is a reason for joy that I am with you and I am a person of joy. 
And why is Jesus being so joyful? You know why? He's taking after his father. He's taking after his heavenly father because no one was ever as joyful as God himself. Now, I'm going to read something that Dallas Willard wrote uh, when he was in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And these are all pictures from Port Elizabeth, South Africa that you're going to see. And I want you to focus on that and not on me. So I'm going to sit down and read this, but I want you to see what he says because he starts out saying, God is the most joyful being in the universe. So as I read this, listen to what I say, but look at all these images too that are from Port Elizabeth, South Africa. This is Dallas Willard, the wonderful philosopher. He says, while I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me, and I realized that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like it and unlike it, and this and billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their beauty and marvelous forms and movements. But God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. We are enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them, but he, he is simply one great, inexhaustible, and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. And Willard concludes with these words, all of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. God is the most joyful being in the universe. Think about that. Even in a fallen world, God is a God of joy because he obviously knows the joy that we can anticipate in the long run. When we make it to the greatest of weddings, he's really in the wedding business. We, the church, are his bride. And I love how it's put in the book of Revelation where it says the people of God will arrive in heaven adorned as a bride and there will be no more tears he will wipe away every tear that is reason for joy that is reason for a party and even until that day in this broken world and yes with plenty of suffering and loss and difficulty and uncertainty and confusion and chaos we have reason to be joyful because we have the abundance of this new life the new wine that he offers the question is, have you taken the invitation to be a part of it? Have you accepted, if you will, his card? For about 11 years, I served as minister to the university at Samford. And uh, we, four times every summer, have freshman orientation. How many of y'all who were students, did you ever go to freshman orientation over the summer? We always have four of those at Samford. And uh, I was a university minister, so I would get up and talk about Sanford and everything I loved about it and everything. I would try to be a, a Christian community there and everything. Inevitably, after the Sunday morning worship service of that orientation, I would be just ambushed by dads, <laughs> mainly dads of daughters, 
okay? And they just want to make sure their daughter's going to be okay and everything. And almost every time they would hand me their business card and say, if anything ever, you know, happens, you, you, you give me a call. Yeah, okay, okay. And then I got this little stack of, of dad business cards, neurotic dad business cards. And I would go back to my office and to be confessional here, I would, you know, open my uh, middle drawer there, sling them in there, shut the drawer, you know, and there they were. And I had, wound up cleaning that out recently, had a big old collection of them back there. There was one guy who was a father, in, it looked like in his mid-40s maybe, and I thought he said his name was Bernard. I couldn't quite understand, but he said, here is my card. You take care of my little girl and all of the children here, all these children of God. I said, certainly. Really don't remember that. He explained it later. Okay, so he did that, and like all the other cards, I threw it into my drawer, and it went back in the back. And uh, four years later, I get a, just a real light knock on my door, and this man comes in and says, hello, may we speak for a moment? I said, sure. I said, come on, sit down. And he said, I... I wanted to let you know that I am speaking at uh, the next family weekend worship service here at Sanford. You know, we have family weekend in October. I said, yeah. He said, I just wanted to make sure you were okay with my speaking. Well, inside, my answer was no, because I'm in charge of that. Who are you? Who is this guy coming in and saying, I'm going to be speaking at this thing that you're putting together. I was also bothered because I had a student named Kirby Owenby who preached such a good sermon in my preaching class, I was having him preach. We already have a preacher. But this guy sits down there, and I noticed he, his, it, was a, it was a German accent. He was like, you know, I just want to, I've spoken with your president, and he invited me to do that. I hope you're okay with that. And I'm like, well, I love Dr. Quartz, but come on, man, keep me in the loop and everything. And so we keep talking, and he's like, I really do hope you don't mind. And I finally said, have we met? He said, yes, four years ago, I gave you my card. Oh, one of those in the desk, I'm sure. I gave you my card, and, and uh, uh, I told you to take care of my little Jackie. He said, my daughter is Jackie. I said, what's your last name? He said, uh, Jackie Longer. I said, oh, I know Jackie Longer. I haven't had, had her in class, but, um, uh, you know, I've had her here. And he said, yeah. Uh, and I said, by the way, your name is? He said, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't introduce. My name is Bernhard. Okay, wait. Bernhard Longer, <laughs> Masters champion, PGA champion, all around incredible golf. You, Oh, you're blonde hair, you're, you're, you're Bernhard Longer. Uh, and it was Bernhard Longer. And I said, yes, Bernhard Longer, we would love to have you speak. Uh, and he was great. He gave a marvelous testimony. He had it all written out, and he's witty and wonderful and very heartfelt. He's a very devout guy, and I was very, very touched and blessed by what he had to say. But isn't it funny, you know, later on I dug it out and he had his PGA card. There's, a, there's Bernard Lager's PGA card was in my desk the whole time. <laughs> isn't it interesting? He gave me his card, I put it away and forgot about it. And it was Bernhard Longer. How often does Jesus offer us his card? Maybe even you. And what you've done is take it and just forget about it. If that's you, I hope you will consider becoming a part of his business because it will bring you new waters of life. You will taste of the new wine of abundant life that only he can offer. I hope and pray that you will consider that. And I hope and pray that all of us would consider what a gift it is to have that in our lives. If we are believers or if you're not, if you will consider what it would mean for you to have that. I'd like to ask the deacons to come forward who are going to help me serve. And as they come forward, I'd like for us to have just a moment of prayer uh, as we enter into the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Be with us now, O God, and remind us 
of this business that you are in, granting grace to us and exhibiting your sovereignty in so many mighty ways. And also, yes, being a God of joy, of the abundant life that only you can offer. As we partake of this meal, O God, may we remember that as you held up that cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood, drink this in remembrance of me. May we remember what you were all about, what you are all about, and what living eternal life will be all about for us, which is the greatest gift of all. We pray these things in your name. Amen.